0: Clearly there's some connection between the struggle, the darkness, the descent, and what it enables to us, which is the return, the meeting with the goddess.
1: And that is the goal of this earth life, is this constant cycle of descension ascension. Welcome, welcome, ye handmaids and ye goddesses.
0: Welcome to the Behold Thy Mother podcast. Welcome to all of our friends. In this episode, you're going to get to know two of your hosts a little bit more myself, Alin, and Jessica, as we talk through some of our own faith journeys, especially as they relate to the divine feminine. Jessica and I have gotten to know each other over the last year. Wow, has it really been that long. We've had some of the best, most soul-expanding conversations, and so we're really excited to share some of those with you today. Oh
1: my goodness, Alin, I am so happy to be here with you today,
0: talking the talk. I know, and I'm so excited. Seriously, every time that we sit down to talk, it is just mind stretching and it just fills my spirit you honestly have just like become like
1: the soul sister I never knew that I had living on the other side of this planet and every time that I talk to you I just feel my heart like expanding and we're literally like twins our lives I'm like blown away when I first met you so many things that we just have in common that I was like whoa okay served in Eastern Europe. Okay. Met husband on mission, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm on board and then studied, um, the middle East and the near East studied
0: Arabic, studied Hebrew.
1: My goodness. We just line up in so many ways.
0: It's so true. When you first reached out to me on Instagram and I took a look at all of your content and, oh my goodness, the videos that you produced, I was just so excited. I couldn't believe here I had found someone who has a background after my own heart who approaches things in such a similar way but of course with your own unique energy and perspective and gifts and let me tell you getting to know you and collaborating with you on so many of these wonderful projects has just been incredible a dream come true
1: i know i know i just like i will just like never forget um i listened to this interview with Emma Watson a few years back and it was at a time in my life when i was feeling like a lonely college student and She said that at one point in her life, she actually felt quite lonely or just quite outside of the group. And she said, what I've learned in my life is that you just have to go out and find your tribe. And once you find them, everything will start to click. And that's how I feel every time that I talk to you, I just feel like, all right, this is my tribe. And it's just so refreshing to hear your journey of faith and how it has healed and helped me on mine. I'm so excited to be sharing that with our audience. I just really do feel that the more that we show the cracks in ourselves, like this, this scripture, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 4, it, it says that we're these earthen vessels with cracks inside of us, and those cracks allow the light within us to shine on the outside of the vessel and when we can be vulnerable and when we can share with other people and they can see the light that shines through the cracks they get to see the ways that god
0: and all of the members of the godhead are healing us and bringing light into our lives i love that i've always been kind of an esoteric thinker I remember in high school, my first philosophical love was Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, (laughs) I mean, who doesn't love a good transcendentalist, right? (laughs) But there's this quote from his essay on friendship that stuck with me all these years. He said, Are you the friend of your friend's buttons or of his thoughts? To a great heart, he will be a stranger in a thousand particulars that he may come near in the holiest ground. And I remember when I first read that, it rang so true. I'm sure we've all had those friends who, if, if you don't see them for a while, it's kind of awkward to jump back in. And you realize that kind of your whole friendship was based on these trivial things with the day-to-day knowledge that you had to know the buttons of their life in order to keep up the friendship. And then we have these other friends who maybe we don't know everything about them or we even lose contact with them for a while. And yet our friendship is holy, it's deep. We can talk about things of the soul and be drawn closer to divinity because of that friendship and through that friendship. And that's something that makes me so excited for doing this podcast with you, Jessica. We live on opposite sides of the world right now. And at least so far, we've never actually met in person and we might be strangers in a thousand particulars. And yet our friendship allows us to approach this holiest ground, like Emerson said. And and the same goes for our listeners, right? We might not know each other's life buttons. We might not even know each other at all. But I hope that we can call each other friends in this true sense, friends of each other's thoughts and spirit.
1: That is the coolest. Oh, Elyn, that is so sweet. I feel the exact same way about you. So, Elyn, I wanna dive right in. And I wanna see the thoughts. I wanna see the cracks, and I wanted to ask you. Right at the start, if you would be willing to share with us a pivotal point in your faith journey that led you deeper, deeper down into the darkness, into the fog, whatever you would call it, into the unknown, and how it has brought you where you are today with what you're doing.
0: Yeah, of course. So my search or my journey was really born of pain and difficulty and I don't think that's particularly unique to me I know there's a lot of people that have had similar experiences so these really soul-wrenching questions that I spend a lot of time with now really only became preeminent or kind of all-consuming in my life several years ago it was right when I first got married Uh, My husband and I met on the mission, he's from New Zealand, and it was kind of a leap of faith for us to get married. We hadn't actually really dated in person, but we both felt that it was right. Um, We dated long distance and eventually got married, and I followed him to New Zealand. (laughs) And I mean, New Zealand is like the Eden of the world, right? It's beautiful, it's luscious, um, it's incredible. But there's something about that transition period, being in a new country, being newly married, kind of well, I felt kind of assimilating into my husband's life and not necessarily having our own life starting together. That That's what I felt really, even if it wasn't true, <laughs> but anyway, I, I felt this loss of identity. And somewhere along the way, I started to see this huge gap between who I thought I was, who I felt like I was or was destined to be and what I felt like was being told to me or how people were interpreting doctrine to me and what that said about my eternal potential. And I don't know if one caused the other or if they were just, coincidentally at the same time but this manifested itself in a couple other things so it manifested itself in depression and anxiety i'm really open about that i struggled a lot and i i think that they stemmed from kind of these these trials this big life event this emotional struggle that I was dealing with. Um, but then they also compounded these struggles that I, that I was facing. And alongside the suppression and these questions, I began to have this really deep religious crisis. And I started to feel like it was irreconcilable. Like there was no way that made sense for me in the eternities for me in the church, it was so difficult to see myself in the doctrine. And I'll be honest, this was, this was not a quick turnaround of, oh, I had this really difficult moment and then I came through it and everything's great. No, this was years and years that I felt like I was just drowning and hopeless. And I couldn't see any way that things could make sense. I couldn't see myself mattering to god or really what my eternal destiny looked like and i mean we did we moved back to the states after a year in new zealand and some of those initial triggers this kind of loss of identity and and all that was removed right i felt like finally we were kind of building our own life together it was ours instead of me jumping into his and that kind of thing but these questions remained: these questions of my spiritual identity I still feel them sometimes, right? And I don't know how many of our listeners are going to resonate with this, but I went to the temple a lot. I really struggled with the way that things seemed on the surface. When I would hear certain words or phrasing, it really cut me deeply. And with my mental health struggles, I would fixate on those phrases and I couldn't let them go, and it would just echo in my mind this painful evidence, or what I felt like was undeniable evidence that I did not matter because I was a woman. And I could talk forever about my experiences in these depths of depression, because it really felt like forever, which I do think is important to note. because often when we tell these stories, we tend to kind of skip over things like we struggled, and then we got it got better. And we kind of skip over the struggle. And it's important to sit with that struggle. I think it's not a quick struggle. For so many of us, it's a long and difficult struggle. And for some, it's a lifelong struggle. I think it's I think it's important to note that, that these are drawn out. And it's also important to note that I got professional help for my mental health struggles, which was absolutely essential for me coming out of this space. And I don't want to minimize the effects of mental health or say, you know, study and pray and that can fix it because one, that was not my experience. And I know that that can be so damaging to others. So first I want to make it clear I got professional help. And once I got that, I was able to be in this mental space and the spiritual space where I could take a step back and start to tackle these questions. These questions that had previously been so tied up with my emotions and my depression that I couldn't even deal with them, (laughs) that swallowed me up, finally, once I was able to deal with them in a healthy space, I could look at them objectively, start to approach them from a scholastic perspective and really actually allow them to become this holy impetus instead of this weight pulling me down. So I dove in, and that's kind of my nature. I like to attack things with everything that I can. These questions and these fears became really all-consuming in my study, my prayers, my conversations, my meditations, everything, right? I talked with my friends and with church leaders and my husband and my sisters and my parents. (laughs) I was at BYU and I reached out to some really trusted professors who were so Christ-like and would really sit with me in my pain. And, you know, there's one in particular that I remember, he sat with me for hours in his office going through my pages and pages of questions and notes and talking through them from different perspectives he'd spent a lot of time studying certain elements of this there were others he didn't know much about and we would talk through it and really wrestle and weep when we didn't have any good answers those experiences are so precious and and i am so grateful for the people that were there And because these questions were so personal and central to my own sense of identity and my relationship with God, I just couldn't give up. And I still have a lot of these questions, but I will say that I've been led to some really incredible insights and learning and what I feel like have been answers directly from God to me for some of these questions. So as far as my academic background, I doubled in economics and in Middle Eastern studies and Arabic language at BYU. Um, I was really drawn to the Arabic because of some powerful experiences that I had. Um, most of my mission, I served in Bosnia. From there, I just kind of dove into interfaith studies, comparative theology, Islamic philosophy, linguistics I'm a linguist at heart so I started studying Hebrew I spent some time in Jordan and Israel and and all of these things just kind of begin to coalesce into this funnel of information from God and we've all got our own little funnels um, our own ex- unique experiences that lead us to the questions but um, that's some of mine Oh
1: my goodness Ellen when I think of you like I honestly just think, Of wisdom and just this unquenchable thirst for knowledge. And you just remind me of Eve in in so many ways and our heavenly mother, because you have just this unquenchable thirst to know. And no matter what anyone tells you, there's just always this, this prick in your heart or just like this this shifting in your seat that you have to stand up and this itch that you have to go after and find. And that's what I love about you. And what I love about the savior is that he's always inviting us to knock and to ask, and then we will receive. And you, you really are the epitome to me of someone who is never satisfied with the status quo or just what she's given. And you're someone who seeks to know quite thoroughly depth of our purpose here in life. And I just, I love that your journey, even though it was filled with a lot of struggle and a great length of time and yeah, definitely the depths of, of, um, the worst of the effects of mental illnesses, you were able to channel that into something that was so empowering and good and hopeful and, It honestly reminds me of Lehi and his vision of the tree of life after walking through the
0: mist. About doing this podcast together is I, I do have this love for knowledge and this intellectual curiosity. And I would just sit and in my office and study all day long if I could. Right. But I'm not always good at articulating that or at communicating my deep love for these things and you are you have this energy this passion this talent for words and for communicating this emotion of the stories and and of these concepts and things that are so important in our doctrine and every time that I sit down and talk with you, it's like the things that I am thinking in my mind <laughs> that I don't quite have words for, I hear them come out in your voice. And they're so much more beautiful than I could say them. And so I just love that back and forth. You know, I think we have really similar passions and a lot of the same things matter to us, but we have different talents and ways that we can express those. And I love it.
1: Okay, you're the sweetest, but I was literally like laughing so hard because everything that you were saying in your story really lines up with the things that I've been through in my own life. And especially throughout my twenties, the things that I experienced and okay. I don't know if you ever felt this way, but sometimes growing up in the church, I just feel like it just kind of feels like our lives are already mapped out for us. And so when I got married, I felt like a lot of things were being told to me and using religion to kind of like weaponize it against me about who I was supposed to be, how I was supposed to act. And, you know, like what was meant to be like the central focus of my life that just did not compute with me and everything that I had experienced in my relationship with and impressions from God himself. And so I just, yeah, I wonder if you experienced the same thing that I did Which is that very much after I got married, I kind of had this crisis and this freak out. And especially actually after having gotten pregnant and having had a baby, it's like, oh no, (laughs) like I've done everything that everyone mapped out for me to do. And when I got pregnant, I was like, is this the end? Like, is this all that I'm made for to do as well? And I just felt all of the pressure in all of the world, particularly when people would tell me in my classes, because I was pregnant as a senior in college, they would come up to me and they would almost tell me, oh, you don't need to worry about your classes or you don't need to worry about your homework or your studies. Like you're doing the most important thing that you'll ever do. But not just that, this is the greatest thing you'll ever do. And it it was always meant with kindness, of course, but it always broke my heart to have been seen as something less than what I was which was a scholar with a thirst for knowledge myself and to just have felt so put in a box by honestly you know they're cute little quips but really it is the weaponization of religion against a woman telling her all that she will amount to is to just create another life and another life so that she can tell that life if it's female that she's going to create a life and another life and I just really have always wanted to defy that in my own lifetime. So I don't know if you ever experienced those feelings, but I felt that recently.
0: And I think we had really similar experiences in that too. I mean, we both served missions, which a mission is a whole set of <laughs> trials and experiences on its own. But so I had actually been dating a guy before I went on my mission and it was kind of this weird situation of like, should he wait for me? Should he not? There's some uncertainty there, right? But I knew there was no uncertainty that I was supposed to go on a mission. I knew that. And so leaving on this mission was kind of this moment of claiming my own authority and confidently moving forward in the revelation that I had received in what I felt like God was telling me to do. And then I came back and I had all these plans after the mission. Uh, you know, I'm going to take this internship. I'm going to do that study abroad and, and so forth. And then I felt super strongly that I was supposed to marry my husband, who was not the guy that I had been dating. And in fact, my husband and I never probably in a million years would have met had it not been for the mission. But I love
1: lot. him. I love him. Everything you told me so far about him.
0: Love that. He's incredible. (laughs) But where I'm going with this is I had made all these decisions before where, you know, maybe they were hard decisions, but they were mine. And I was doing what I felt called to do. And then suddenly here's this other person in the equation. And you know this too, living in a different country, kind of in your husband's life.
1: Yes, that's why I was like laughing so hard. I was like, "Mm
0: mm-hmm, yep, (laughs) I'm there. Yeah, you get it. And for anyone, I mean, there's a whole new level of interdependence that comes with marriage and these life changes. And there's a great deal of learning and growth that come with that, but it's also really difficult. And the difficult parts, in my personal journey at least, were all tied back to my sense of independence and my own spiritual authority. And ultimately this all tied back to the temple. So at the time the wording was very clear or, I guess I thought it was very clear, I've come to understand it quite differently now and and some wording has changed. But at the time, I felt like I was being directly told to just listen to my husband, right. And having had all these strains of personal sovereignty in my life, following my desires and my passions and feeling powerful in my decisions and, you know, did not really having to consider somebody else as much in my decisions. And then all of a sudden, to feel like I had to rely on or defer to someone else, it was incredibly painful. And so reclaiming that sovereignty and learning or relearning what it really means to have this interdependence in a relationship was absolutely essential for my journey.
1: Okay. Well, I love what you say, like about relearning, because I feel like a lot of things as I've talked with you about the temple, like I'm relearning. And also it feels like when we talk about heavenly mother, that it's, it's like this beautiful, like new fresh view on the entirety of the gospels, the entirety of the scriptures, especially the entirety of the temple experience for me. I feel like I'm, like a, a child, like trying it for the first time again. And this time it's so different to view it from a feminine lens than from the masculine that I feel I was only taught to view it in. And it's been so refreshing for me, especially in my journey into motherhood and marriage to learn about the character of Heavenly Mother and especially also to learn about The manifestation of what it means to be the mother of all living through the narrative of the Garden of Eden and the example and the executive leadership of Eve, it has taught me that motherhood means so much more than just having babies and that our worth is not in our wombs, but in our wisdom and our pursuit of something more when our gut is telling us that there is and listening to our hearts and having the gumption to be brave enough to step into the unknown. I feel like to be a woman, to be a daughter of the feminine divine means so much more about my heart and my mind than it has anything to do with my uterus or with my husband. (laughs) Although he is, of course, the love of my life and my equal partner.
0: Absolutely. I love that. And I love that you brought up Eve. So that's really where my journey started, especially because, I mean, she's the soul embodied female figure in the temple narratives (laughs) she's it (laughs) and so that's where i started and oh my goodness my mind and my spirit have just expanded so much as i've learned about eve i really love what you say about eve and her role of mother or or mother of all living I remember when I first started to put together some of these linguistic ideas. I was in an Arabic literature class and the assignment was to do a creative personal narrative. Um, And I procrastinated, (laughs) as I do. And so I was up really late one night and I was kind of in the middle of this darkness, I mean maybe just beginning to crawl out of it. Um, I'd been studying a lot of things about Eve, trying to reconcile my temple questions and Anyway, I started writing this piece in poetic form, as if I were Eve, kind of how my questions and my loneliness paralleled what I imagined some of her experiences were. And as I started to write, a couple of powerful things really started to make themselves known in my mind. So Eve's name in Arabic is Hawa. It comes from the same Semitic root as it does in Hebrew. And it's related to this word for life, which in Arabic is haya. But then as I started writing and looking things up, I realized that there's this other word. One of the words for serpent in Arabic is haya. And the etymological connections between these words just about struck me dumb. This light bulb of like, oh, hold up, there's something so much deeper going on in this story than you're used to reading in it. And the spirit basically just hit me over the head, <laughs> opening up these connections in my mind. And this idea that Eve's decision was really all about life and what that meant for how we viewed her and this whole narrative and what it meant for me and of course this element of choosing life it's so much more than than bearing children right our identity as life givers really doesn't hinge on on our ability to bear children but it hinges on our ability to choose wisdom and to see the good from evil to to embrace trials and to gain knowledge and to share knowledge and a side note there i mean there's so much to dissect with her name but This title that she's given, this title of mother of all living, that root, "em" of course it means mother, but it's interesting just to note here in Ezekiel 21, 21, it's also translated as the parting of the way. And there's something beautiful to me about that. How Eve's choice was this parting of the way between premortality and mortality, between the known of the garden and the unknown of the world. So I feel like Eve's experience reflects mine in so many ways. For me, coming up against these difficult questions was a parting of the way. I had to choose whether to step into the unknown and tackle these questions and and wrestle or to just kind of wallow in stagnation. <laughs> and that to me, again, is a meaning of motherhood. It's a parting of the way. It's choosing an unknown path in order to gain wisdom and to open the eyes of those around us.
1: Wow. Oh my goodness. You know, as you were saying that, like I have this image in my mind of Moses parting the Red Sea into. And I also see the first verses of Genesis one that talks about the spirit moving upon the waters as if to divide them and just this beautiful imagery. And, and, you know, you and I, of course, we'll talk about this in future episodes, but knowing that one of the epithets of Asherah is the lady of the sea or she who walks on the water. I just feel that it's it's such a beautiful manifestation of her and her power to do the impossible and to make a way where no way has been had before and that really honestly was Eve's mission too. She was sent to make a way where there had not been because Adam's eyes had been closed and her eyes the entire account are described as fully open, fully awakened and seeing from the desires of her heart what needs to be done and what is necessary to move forward. And it's just, it's incredible. So you call your account Our Mother Eve. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and what your goal is with your page and and what inspires you on a daily basis?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned, my journey really started with Eve. And I mean, we only just scratched the surface. There is so much to dive into here and we're gonna do whole episodes about this. It's like an onion, it's like the Shrek <laughs> like metaphor.
1: <laughs> it's an onion with so many layers. There are so many different lenses to view the story and
0: it's we're gonna dive into all of them, but I'm excited. Exactly. And that's one of the things that draws me to this story. There's so many lenses and layers. So when I first chose this name, Our Mother Eve, it was because, I mean, yeah, it all started with Eve for me, (laughs) great. But it goes deeper. A second element of this title is Our Mother. Studying Eve really quickly led me to my heavenly mother. And part of that is because she was literally created in our heavenly mother's image, the first woman on earth and the first woman in our mother's image. But also because all of my journey was really at its core about understanding who I am and how I relate to divinity, it became very clear to me that I had to go back to the source of my divine identity, which is my heavenly mother, the goddess in in whose image I'm created and and like whom I, I can become. So I originally thought of just calling my page Eve <laughs> or something like that. But although I started with Eve, I, I didn't end there, right? And, and I can't really untie these lines of study, you know, Eve and Heavenly Mother. And the reason that I focus so much on both of them is because they both help me understand my own identity and destiny. There's two other reasons that I'll mention here. So one is the quote that we have from President Nelson, where he reminds us that we need to have the courage and vision of our mother Eve. And one of the things I'm so inspired by in Eve's story is that she had courage to take a step into the dark because she had the faith and vision to see that the savior was there in the dark, that he would follow her into mortality and descend and enable us to step back out of the darkness so that courage that she had to step into the n- this unknown was entirely in my opinion based upon her faith in the savior and i think that's something that i hope to embody this courage that i can draw from her and from my experiences to tackle the questions or the things that i'm uncomfortable with or the doctrines i don't understand that just aren't clear to me I can have that courage because I have confidence that the Savior is there in the in-between, in the darkness, in these difficult things. I can have courage to face mortality with faith and hope in the Savior. And then the last part that I'll mention, it's, it's kind of an obscure reference. So in Middle Egyptian, the word for mother is moot. And interestingly enough, the word for death is also moot. Now, don't get me wrong. So these are these are different hieroglyphs, but it's thought that they were pronounced the same. So even though there's likely not any etymological connection between these words, when I first learned of this phonetic connection, I <laughs> just got so excited. And a bit of parallelomania here, right? <laughs> I kind of let my mind run wild. Um, but, I, but I think that the principles that I drew from from this phonetic connection are true and they've rung true to me and and you can see them in a lot of other cultures and traditions. So this connection between motherhood and death, there's something really powerful to me about considering the role that Eve had in ushering in mortality. And I don't think it's just that her choice allowed death to enter the world. Rather, I mean, if you boil it down, death is a transition point. It's a transition from one life to the next. And in a very literal sense, motherhood is enabling this transition from one life to the next, from a premortal existence to our mortal one. But in so many other ways, like literal and symbolic, Eve, she demonstrates this characteristic of a mother as someone who facilitates death from an old way of life and a subsequent birth into a new life. So she chooses that for herself when she partakes of the fruit, but then she also reaches back through the veil and pulls Adam through it and essentially becomes a mother to him in, in this symbolic way, right? She, she enables him to make that transition from one life to the next. And it's kind of the same symbolism that we choose at baptism, where we have a death and a rebirth that symbolizes a new life, this this new level of living, a choice in a sense to transgress the bounds of our existence, right? We get to a point where we can't progress anymore in the sphere we're in, and we have to choose to transgress that limit and, and move forward. So I wanted the word mother specifically in there as a reminder as well that we are supposed to progress. To die from an old way of life, to transgress the limits of that old life, to choose a new life, and in doing so, to become more like our heavenly parents and our savior. Okay, well, I was just thinking that's so fascinating. The way that you
1: have brought up so many different things. I keep thinking of the text that you referred me to just last night, and then the Nag Hammadi text is called On the Origin of the World to anyone listening. Um, I read through. This text and my jaw literally dropped. This is a beautiful train of thought. And obviously, I take it with a grain of salt, but I love the way that it describes Eve as being made specifically in the image of the mother, and that the mother herself became a tree like she became the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she created this pathway that was to you know, presenting these two opposite ideas and you very much had to make a decision. You, You either stay or you leave. And as you describe Eve and her role, I love that this text on the origin of the world talks about Eve as the instructor. I love that it specifically calls her that. And as I've thought about my life and as I've thought about a blessing actually that my dad gave me, Uh, One night when I was sick, I was like throwing up and it was just a miserable night when I was 17. He gave me this blessing and he said something very profound after having anointed me with oil. He said, Jessica, I want to impress upon your mind the symbolism of the olive oil. And he told me, think about the olive oil. Think about the olives Think about the Savior Christ in Gethsemane and remember that before the olive can become oil and can be used for its purposes to heal and to help and to bless and inspire, it must undergo a time of pressure and pushing and immense force. And I just will never forget that blessing because what it brought to my mind was, Jessica, before you will be able to do what you've been called to do, before you will ever be able to write or to speak or to stand up for these things that you believe or to really testify of the God that you love and the relationship that you have with him, you will have to take that relationship to the depths and to the brink of its own death in a way, you will have to step into the darkness and you will have to undergo a great deal of pressure. It's actually really beautiful to me because the first time I went through the temple, my sister bought me these pearl earrings and wrote me this letter about how I hope that when you're in the temple, I hope that you see yourself in Eve and that you compare yourself to her and ponder on what it means to be like her. And then she talked to me about She talked to me about the beauty of a pearl and the pressure that it undergoes to become something so rare and so beautiful to behold. And yeah, it just makes me emotional, but I really do feel like to anyone listening, the darkness that we go through, the mist that we endure, the fog of our faith journey is all a part of our spiritual maturity and is all quintessential the pressure, it is also necessary to purifying ourselves so that we really can be the agents that we need to be. And in full circle, what I've learned about Asherah, what I've learned about Heavenly Mother being symbolized in trees and specifically olive trees in Gethsemane is that this oil that's used to bless and empower those who are wounded and sick and need healing, it is all so symbolic of her and leads directly back to the mother. So I just think that all of those things just come together in this beautiful healing environment. And that's the way that I feel whenever I talk with you. I feel wrapped up in this beautiful Holy of Holies and this beautiful communion of wisdom. And I feel Heavenly Mother's presence very much with us and Heavenly Father's too. And I just feel so grateful for the pressure that we've been through because it's pushed us to seek for something more I'm grateful for the darkness because I feel like it's brought a lot of
0: life into both of our lives.
1: And that's what we want to do. We want to share it with everyone else.
0: I love that. And I love that you talk about darkness because even in these first verses in Genesis 1, it talks about darkness being on the face of deep. And I mean, we're going to do whole episodes diving into to these verses and you know what this this word deep really means there's a lot more to it teaser (laughs) but even if we just focus here on darkness in other places of scripture we have this darkness being associated with the clouds of theophany the the very presence of god and it's profound to think how often darkness in our own lives precedes divine visitation and i don't think that's a coincidence I don't either. I think it's beautiful, and it's so essential, just as much as the light is. I mean, that's one of the unique aspects of mortality that is so essential to our journey. When Nephi and Lehi have this vision of the Tree of Life, and the Spirit asks if Nephi knows the condescension of God, that condescension is absolutely essential to the Savior's role. He had to enter mortality to suffer, In order to be able to lift us up and above and through and beyond and in the same way Eve had to descend from this Edenic paradise in order for any of us to progress through mortality and on to become like our heavenly parents there truly is no other way we see that on a macro scale with the Savior and with Eve but Even in our own lives on a micro scale, we have to enter the darkness. This liminal space that Richard Rohr talks about all the time.
1: Yes. Okay. All my professors at BYU were so excited about liminality when I was
0: there. With good reason. It's great.
1: (laughs) No, it's... Oh, we're going to talk about it so much. But listen, Alin, why don't you go ahead and talk about the gift of the goddess? Because this is all just really speaking large volumes to that.
0: And I feel like it would benefit our listeners
1: to hear about it.
0: Ah, the gift of the goddess. What a great concept to talk about. Okay, let me back up and put this in a little bit of context before I go further. So if you look at so many of the great mythologies and legends and epic tales, there are a lot of patterns that begin to show themselves in the stories. One of these, Joseph Campbell called the hero's journey. And let me preface this by saying, so Joseph Campbell is kind of known for cherry picking some of the stories he analyzed, um, especially when he was first kind of conceptualizing this pattern. I believe he's a psychoanalyst. Um, I know he was really influenced by Carl Jung, and he was not a professional mythologist, even though he's gotten so much clout and recognition as one of the great mythologists. He actually by profession was not. So he's gotten a lot of criticism, especially for this kind of cherry picking. Um, so. Take this all for what you will. (laughs) But there is enough of the pattern that he identified in a lot of these stories that I think it's a useful framework to start with. So the way that he lays out a hero's journey, he's got this kind of cyclical diagram where you begin the story in the known world, something really comfortable. And then there's this call to adventure and he describes it as always being a dangerous adventure because you're moving out of the familiar sphere or you're crossing a threshold. He also describes it as a crossing from the conscious into the unconscious world. And you can see that in that and like a lot of the other descriptions that he gives, you can see a lot of his, psychological or psychoanalytical mind coming through. But in essence, you leave this known world, the familiar, and you face challenges and temptations, you you descend, and at the darkest part you face, whether literally or symbolically, a death and a rebirth. And then there's a transformation, an atonement, and a recrossing of the threshold or a return into the known world. Um, but of course, you're on a higher plane than you were when you returned, right? The the goal was never to return exactly the same, but to return transformed and elevated. So there's actually a really great class from the Project Illumination School, it's called Esoteric Egypt, and in it, the instructor, Jared, pointed out that this pattern of the hero's journey might even inform how we see the savior and his title as Alpha and Omega. So not necessarily as describing a linear beginning and end, but rather as a cyclical round kind of this one eternal round that Hugh Nibley talks about a lot if you put that in the context of the hero's journey I mean that's quite beautiful where you have Christ as the beginning of your journey the alpha and the end of the journey the omega and not to go too far down that tangent road but it really is kind of the spiral that just continually spirals upward and I think it's quite beautiful to look at it that way so despite the flaws in Campbell's model or the critiques that he's gotten for it, you can probably see this general pattern show up in a lot of profound contexts as you're listening. So our very earthly journey could be described in such a way with a moving from the known existence or maybe our pre-mortal existence, where we were with God and knew God into an unknown world, descending into this lower realm so that we might have challenges and temptations and face this abyss of mortality. And then through the atonement, return to the realm of God, having more knowledge and experience and having been transformed by our experiences. And we can see this in the temple narrative and in Eve's story. There's this call to a dangerous adventure where Eve and then by extension, all of us, have to leave the known world, this, this Eden, this paradise, the pre-mortal spirit existence, whatever it may be. And then the whole of our lives is played out in this unknown realm, striving to return. So once again in this, you can see that descent is a vital part of the journey. But that's a bit of context. So now let's look at what Joseph Campbell termed the gift of the goddess or the meeting with the goddess. So in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he said, The ultimate adventure when all barriers and ogres have been overcome is commonly represented as a mystical marriage of the triumphant hero soul with the queen goddess of the world. This is the crisis at the nadir, at the zenith, or at the uttermost edge of the earth, at the central point of the cosmos, in the tabernacle of the temple, or within the darkness of the deepest chamber of the heart. So he describes this second crossing of the threshold from the unknown back into the known, after the descent, after the darkness, as this gift of the goddess. And he describes how sometimes in mythology this is a literal meeting or a literal marriage or unity with a goddess, and other times it's more symbolic. So there's a lot of things that I personally draw from applying this to the Eve narrative and to our understanding of our Heavenly Mother. So first of all, doesn't this just speak volumes about Eve's choice to partake of wisdom And we'll talk so much about this conceptualization of Lady Wisdom as a symbol of our Heavenly Mother. But just right off the bat, there's something going on here about... Eve's decision and perhaps how she was following directions or the example of her heavenly mother. And so I love this description that Campbell used when he talked about after the darkness and the trials and the difficulties, there's this reuniting with the goddess that either precedes or coincides with this crossing of the threshold back into the known universe. But he also describes it as a crisis. Clearly, there's some connection between the struggle, the darkness, the descent, and what it enables us, which is a return, a meeting with the goddess. And I mean, if we are to put that in our own theological construct, you know, perhaps this reuniting at the end of mortality with not just our heavenly father, but our heavenly mother, and that being kind of the ultimate goal the ultimate triumph over difficulty is this gift of the goddess but i also think that there's something going on here about eve's choice to partake and mortality as a gift from our heavenly mother as well and you know i haven't fully fleshed that idea out right so maybe maybe i shouldn't even have brought it up as much because it's it's still kind of simmering in my mind and and maybe that is kind of drawing on some of valerie hudson's work you know eve having a stewardship over entering mortality and adam having a stewardship over entering immortality and so maybe that's kind of where this idea is coming from but i personally i find a lot of deep connection and meaning between this idea of entering mortality descending and this gift of the goddess and another interesting thing is in this pattern that campbell describes The meeting with the goddess is kind of this this moment of realizing that you are on a higher plane of realizing that you've overcome, that you've triumphed. It is to some extent what enables you to come out of the depth as well.
1: Okay, so as you were talking, I just kept thinking about how one of the very first things that we hear in the temple narrative, which of course is metaphorical in nature and is not necessarily word for word, 100% what was actually said, but what we hear at least in this rendition is both Jehovah and Adam, the representations of God as well as mankind, both of them saying, let us go down we will go down. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that that Hebrew word is Yared, the name basis for the name Jared. And that word means to descend. But it's actually interesting and I could be totally far off base here, but I've been wondering if there's any association between that word Yared and perhaps a similar root basis for the word Rada. Radha we see appearing in the account of Genesis one when Elohim says, let them, the man and the woman have dominion, let them rule, let them subdue, let them have dominion. And so if there's any association between these words, if there is any kind of parallel, it's beautiful to see the opposition presented here and these two contrasting ideas To me, it it actually is quite beautiful to imagine Adam saying, I will go down. But then Elohim, you know, we often get we get this wrong. We say so often, the first commandment given to Adam and Eve was to multiply and replenish. But that is actually not the first thing that God said to them. First thing he said to them was, Let you guys be created in my image, be like me. The second thing that was said to them was, have dominion. So it's beautiful to see first the descent of Adam into the world, and then Elohim, our heavenly father and our heavenly mother, pronouncing upon the man and the woman's head this pronunciation of now rise up and rule and ascend. And that is the goal of this earth life, is this constant cycle of descension ascension. And I love the way that you describe it as cyclical. That's something that we talked about recently as women, that you know, it's it's so much more appropriate for us to think of our lives and our energy and reaching our goals in cycles rather than in this linear ascension and progression that we've kind of always been taught in our society from a masculine point of view to strive for. And when we embrace the cycle of the ups and the downs and the lows and the highs and the high energy and the lack of energy, it actually is all a part of our good and it keeps us going in this circle, but the circle itself keeps rising and rising and rising. And I love the way that you describe Christ as the beginning and the end of this circle. He just is this cycle that keeps rising and rising and rising.
0: I love that beautiful experience that you shared and what your sister shared about the pearl and the pressure that it has to undergo. As you were talking, it reminded me of the scripture in Doctrine and Covenants 58. That talks about the Lord saying that he sent them and that the trials and difficulties they're undergoing are so that they might be obedient and that their hearts might be prepared to bear testimony of the things which are to come. And isn't that true that so often the darkness and the difficulty, the descent, (laughs) the depths, the depression are often the only things that enable and prepare and empower us to bear testimony of the light. And I see that as this common thread in several of the stories that you and I have shared both here on the podcast, as well as just between us. And I know that every single one of our listeners is going to have their own individual stories that also show this pattern. And again, I don't want to minimalize the, the depth and the despair and the darkness that we do pass through. But I also want to hold that sacred. We hear both the Savior and Eve crying out. Is there no other way? If there be any other way, let this pass from me. But we know that that to both of them came the answer that there is no other way. And so Eve gave her pre-mortal life and she entered mortality. She partook of the fruit and the savior gave his mortal life. And he partook of the bitter fruit that we might taste the sweet. And this is just one of the many examples of Eve's story that points us to the savior. And we see darkness in both Eve's story and the Savior's, but we also see the Savior overcoming that darkness. And look, we see that in, you know, nearly every scriptural and prophetic story as well. I mean, Joseph Smith talking about what brought him to initially seek divine revelation from God for his own life. It was this great anxiety for the welfare of his soul. And he says that he came to a point where he either had to remain in darkness or ask of God. And this is kind of my editorializing there, but I don't know if he would have come to a point to ask of God had he not first crossed through the darkness. Well, I
1: love the way that you just described that because the scripture that inspired Joseph Smith to seek was the scripture that stated, if any of you lack wisdom let him ask of god and even in the sacred grove he felt darkness completely surrounding him and obviously that was a negative kind of darkness but the brilliant light came through and shone upon him and what's so beautiful i love that it is called the gift of the goddess is that embracing darkness is really this sacred and it is this holy sanctuary of an opportunity for us to experience purification rebirth and new insights that we never would have had we we can't dream with our eyes open we have to close our eyes and we have to have this period of time where we sleep and then we have visions in the night the gift of dreams is real and it is prophetic and it's something that many of the old testament prophets experienced and wrote about I also think that it's so profound that the veil that we used to utilize in temple ceremonies represents this moment of darkness. And obviously, we're going to, of course, we're going to talk about veils, you and I, much more in future episodes. But this veil represents this willingness to step into the darkness and this intention of symbolically slipping once again into our heavenly mother's womb and being close to her heartbeat, being closer to her ears and her lips and her mouth than we have ever been before. And she as well is closer. I think of that fabric touching my lips and draping over my ears. She is closer than ever before to the words of my mouth and my needs and the things that I would say to her. And that veil stretches from the tips of our head down to our hearts, symbolizing this connection between our minds and our wisdom and the desires of our hearts. And that veil sits atop our head like a crown of righteousness. And that veil on top of our head is just like olive oil or the hands of of a priesthood holder on top of our head. And it blesses our central source in our bodies of wisdom. It is a gift. It is a moment, yes, of darkness and of consecration to literally be set apart or divided from the rest of the room with us. But it is quite literally a moment of pure and uninterrupted intimacy between us and our heavenly mother And it is a moment for her to manifest herself to us in a way that nobody else gets to experience. It's quite personal. And this darkness is all leading up to this moment of unveiling. You know, I've often reflected recently about how in baptism, we never talk about the discomfort that it is to be underneath the water and to be so close to dying or drowning, obviously, we talk about the moment when we come forth out of the water and the beauty that it is and the water that drips off of us, because that's the point of baptism. And similarly, the point of veiling is the unveiling experience when we lift the veils off of our faces, as if to say, just like every prophet of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaiah, and I also believe Samuel, Jacob, to say as Christ himself, here I am, here am I, and so too will the mother and the father both say, here am I. They will reveal themselves. All things will be revealed, and that I feel um a little sad that we don't do that anymore but it is also a beautiful manifestation that we don't do that anymore because it is really symbolic of this worldwide unveiling of this beautiful knowledge and as the earth has been covered in this veil and has been hidden from the knowledge of our heavenly mother and as it has abused the revelations that it has been given of our mother eve i'm so grateful for someone like you who is my soul sister in this effort and in this journey of discovery to praise and to honor and to emulate our mother Eve and to reveal what the truth of her story was so that we all can ascend to a higher plane. I'm so grateful for the descent. I'm grateful for the difficulties I've experienced, even for the the worst of injustices that I've experienced in my life that led to a feminist awakening for me, a spiritual awakening for me, because it really has led me to this point of healing and hope and wisdom and light. And if I hadn't experienced those feelings, I never would have read these narratives with the emotions and with the feelings that I believe have always been there in plain sight. We just haven't had the eyes to see them. And so it's Heavenly Mother through the darkness and through blessing our minds and our eyes and our ears and our lips and our hearts that she teaches us how to open our eyes and see things for what they really are in between the lines.
0: I love hearing you talk about veils. Um, Every time that you, you do, I kind of instinctively close my eyes so that I can appreciate that moment more which is kind of ironic right because that almost perfectly symbolizes that moment that you talk about so beautifully availing yourself in order to really focus on your relationship with divinity and just hearing what that moment means to you i mean it's powerful the passion that comes through when you talk about it and and your love for god for your mother especially and what that moment means and how sacred it is it's so powerful it reminds me, um, I don't know if you or, or our listeners know Heather Farrell, but she's a she's written a lot about women in the Old Testament. And she pointed out to me that the word for womb is the same as the word for compassion. And I mean, just think of the implications there. Compassion being love, but, but more significantly, compassion meaning to suffer with. And I might even extrapolate from that the life that comes from the womb, and the life that comes from suffering, the way that we're able to pull new life out of these difficulties and the sufferings. And of course, that's so symbolic as well of the Savior. And just another example of how so much of the Savior's role parallels the roles of a mother to suffer with, to give new life. And of course, there's so much other symbolism about baptism and how that relates to wombs and the Holy of Holies and everything else that we'll talk through in great depth. But just considering the beauty of all of these things, including suffering, which beget life.
1: Well, what's so beautiful about that is that the Messiah in Gethsemane, what he was doing was mimicking what a mother goes through. Every single woman on this planet who has become a mother has gone through some degree of pain. And even those who don't, even just with a period, we experience this this pain or this groaning in our bowels that Moses 7, I think verse 48 describes of the mother of men, she calls herself Mother Earth. Feels and she says, My bowels are crying out against me, against my children here on this earth. And the not just the physical pain that we experience from our wombs, but the emotional pain. It gives us so much compassion. And I, I honestly, I heard someone the other day say, like, it's okay, like if you if you feel like you're behind everyone else because of the trauma you've experienced and you're feeling like oh, like, why can't I just have been like everyone else? They're so far ahead of me. And they're so happy with their lives. I was listening to this, like on TikTok. And I remember thinking, you know, like, I actually feel sorry for people who have never been through something hard. Like I, I honestly, like, I feel the least connection with people who kind of are blinded to the realities, the harsh realities of life, the depth, of emotions, I I feel sorry for them because I feel like they're missing out on the richness of this journey and the compassion that it leads one to feel for the suffering of all humans on this planet and the care and concern we naturally feel as a consequence of going through something ourselves. And so it's beautiful to combine these ideas that like we will go down, let us go down just like a baby has to descend the vaginal canal in order to be born. And that is a very painful experience for a mother. And yet it is the purest expression of love and sacrifice, messianic sacrifice, but really the Messiah was mimicking motherhood in what he did by suffering with us. And that's what we do as mothers. And it has really taught me that my heavenly mother also suffers with me. And she, you know, actually, I I do want to share this recently in a priesthood blessing. I I was told By heavenly father that he and my mother gave me the gift of feeling emotions quite acutely and they asked me to use it it is my superpower they said and I was going through like a lot of like really hard really crappy things at the time and a lot of trauma and pain but they said that they had purposely guided me to sources of education so that I may gain wisdom through those experiences and Um, those personal experiences, I will say, have opened my eyes to scripture in a way that I have never before read them because of the depths that I had to go to. And I know that my heavenly parents were with me the entire step of the way. I can remember in the MTC being a missionary and receiving a blessing. um, And that had been a really dark time for me, actually, There had been like a lot of personal things going on, and I was actually involved in testifying in court in a sexual assault case that I had been a victim in. Yeah, 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 crazy. I was literally in the MTC and had to be transported to the courthouse um, to testify, and there was just like a lot of uncertainty and fears that I had from my family members at home, and I was in the middle of this awakening, I thought that I had already been on this journey, and then... Little did I know I was about to go to Poland and I was about to descend deeper than I've ever gone in my life in terms of spirituality, self-confidence, mental illness, and just being face-to-face with the horror of the world. I went to the land of the Holocaust. I remember being in the MTC before any of this happened, and I remember receiving this blessing from a wonderful elder named Elder Odd, and he put his hands on my head And he said, your father in heaven wants you to know that before you can experience the brilliance of light, you must step into the darkness. You are about to step into the dark. You are about to go deeper into the unknown, but fear not little one for I am God. And in retrospect about almost seven years later, to look back on that time and to look back on everything that I've experienced in my 20s, I can confidently say that God has been with me. I can confidently say that my heavenly mother has been with me as an essential and equal partner in that God-Elohim relationship, and that she particularly came into my life at that time. It was on my mission, specifically in Poland, that I first began to feel really the reality and even hear a female voice come into my head sometimes when I would pray of my heavenly mother and when I started to learn about my own divine destiny. And so I can testify that she is with us in the dark. I can testify that our father is with us in the dark and that the savior is as well. And I can also testify that there is hope that after the dark does come the light and does come the unveiling. And that is what the point of this podcast is, is to reveal what has been hidden. My name, Jessica, at least I was told in one baby book, this may not be accurate, but I've always clung to this since I was like eight and read it in like a baby book names book. My name, Jessica, supposedly means God beholds. And so it's so special to me to be a part of this journey with you, Alyn my friend and my soul sister and to be a part of this project that we call Behold Thy Mother because I know that she beholds us and she always has been there. It's just about revealing her layer by layer and that's what this podcast will be about and it is the gift of the goddess to step into the unknown and to come back with our little jar of honey and healing and light. I'm so excited to Embark on it with you. It's going to be quite a journey for you and me and for our listeners. And so I'm really grateful that they get to join in with us in real time. And I'm so grateful for everything that you shared about the purpose of your page, Our Mother Eve on Instagram. And I am so grateful to have had you in my life as a woman who really emulates Eve as well as Heavenly Mother to me. And I'm so grateful to be a part of what I hope is a healing process for
0: anyone joining us on this journey. It is such an honor to be in this sacred space with you, Jessica, and with all of our listeners. Um, We've heard a lot about my page, but Jessica, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your page, Milkmaid's Honey, and why you call it that? I call myself Milkmaid's
1: Honey, yes, out of the idea of, of blending this This phrase that we often hear associated with the promised land, that it will be a land flowing with milk and with honey. I wanted to create on my page this community of peace and of abundance and also particularly of healing. Honey is so often associated with this concept of healing. It is a balm of stickiness discomfort but sweetness as well and it contains all of the nutrients necessary to sustain life and so I really wanted that kind of imagery associated with what is a very sticky and uncomfortable at times journey but what will always result in something sweet and will hopefully be healing to those who have been wounded um, especially to anyone who's ever had religion weaponized against them if not by someone else maybe just by themselves and their own Um, tendencies of scrupulosity. We're all on this journey together. And so as we say goodbye now, I urge all of you to go and give Alin a follow on Instagram, go to her page at Our Mother Eve, and give her a follow and give her a million likes because she deserves all of them and is a glowing goddess
0: everything that Jessica shares is just pure gold on Milkmaid's honey. She really does have just this pure superpower of conveying these these raw emotions, this raw, raw honey. <laughs> so definitely follow her on Instagram. If you're not, you guys are in for so many treats, all of the conversations, the discussions and the content on our Instagram accounts, and then stick around for the podcast where we are gonna dive into the darkness and the honey you are making me
1: blush okay okay that's enough for now but until next time